Today's episode is brought to you by Cattle. Every product launch faces a chicken and egg problem. You need reviews to convert, but you need conversions to get reviews. Cattle can help. Cattle helps brands win share. They leverage their consumer panel for insights, collecting receipts, and driving product ratings and reviews. It is the largest daily active survey panel in Canada, with over 10,000 daily active users and over 100,000 monthly active users. Let cattle be your chicken and or your egg, depending on your perspective. Visit getcattle.com to learn more. The big one is don't let your present situation or like locality determine your career. So essentially saying, you know, don't let your friends, your family, or your professor tell you what you should be doing. Welcome to Hearts and Carts, the CPG podcast, the podcast about the people behind the products that are winning hearts and filling carts. This cast is for anyone with an interest in the world of consumer products. We're your hosts, Justin Osborne and Alex Hill, and our mission is to bring you weekly content that helps you be a better and more informed CPG professional. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good middle of the night. Welcome back to another episode of Hearts and Carts, everybody. It's Alex, your co-host. I'm here with Justin, your other co-host. And we are about to learn about a function of consumer products we have not covered before. Justin, who are we going to be chatting with? We are chatting with Brian Yam, host of the Mighty Startup on YouTube and also the VP of Regulatory Affairs and Quality Assurance at Blue Ocean Regulatory. Brian is a wealth of knowledge on the regulatory and QA spaces. He's going to talk about his career about the different roles he's been in, and also what those two functions do, why they're valuable, and why someone should choose them as a career path. So let's get into that great conversation with Brian right now. Remember, like, subscribe, follow us on social media, give us those five-star reviews, and thank you again for listening. Here we go. These are just the rules and regulations. Yeah, these are just the Hey, Brian. There we go. There you are. I, there he is. I swear I was clicking away like I was playing Street Fighter 2 in the ninth grade. Just button mash. And did not work. Anyway, I'm here. Good to see you both. You Good too. To Thanks for joining. Yeah. Nice to meet you too, Brian. Yeah, it's been, it's been what, three days since we last talked? So pretty, pretty long time. <laughs> yeah, you've Before grown so that. much since I've seen you. Yeah, I know. I put on a collared shirt for you. So I wanted to. <laughs> which, which, by the way, that collared shirt threw me today yeah uh, a little bit like what what's going on here yeah i think i think it's for you brian yeah. oh thank you yeah yeah the question is am i wearing pants or just basketball shorts <laughs> that's, <laughs> the real, that's the real question but uh but brian thanks for making the time excited to chat with you i'm excited to be here thanks for having me so i'll i'll introduce you and to our audience and then to, to alex as well and then we'll sort of get into your career uh but before we even before i even do that i wanted to tell a fun story about the first time that I met you, or I guess like saw you, it was when I first started at Vega at AGM. You were on stage and you were presenting. And I hadn't met anyone. It was like my first week with the company. Had literally met no one. Went right into AGM. And you're up on stage and you throw up a quote. 
and you threw up the Mike Tyson, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face quote. And right away, I was like, I like this guy. <laughs> like, that, like Mike Tyson just got quoted in a national company meeting. That's freaking awesome. And so that was that was cool. And then hearing about your health journey and, and everything like that was so cool. And then, you know, the next couple of years, I got to know you. But that was my very first experience with you as you flashed up that quote. So I was like, He's not your not your average QA guy. He's a little flair to flair to Brian. Yeah. A little flair. Yeah. I've been punched in the <laughs> nose several times. I will tell you that right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's why. Yeah. So for everybody listening, we've got Brian Yam on the show today. He's the VP of Regulatory Affairs and Quality Assurance at Blue Ocean Regulatory. He's also the host of a wildly successful YouTube channel called The Mighty Startup, which there's a great episode with a sales guy named Justin Osborne on that you got to check out. Probably, <laughs> probably his worst episode of the year. All the other ones are great, but really cool channel and a lot of great free advice for anybody out there that's looking to start a company. So highly recommend that. So Brian, we're excited to have you on as sort of our first guest in the QA regulatory type space. So I think that's going to be an interesting conversation to hear about your career, You know what those roles are, why people would go into them just a different perspective on on the CPG world. So maybe even before that, start with like your career, how you started, you know, what did you go to school for when you graduated? What did you do? And, and kind of walk us through your career path a little bit. Sure. Yeah, no, super, super excited to be here. Yeah, I started with the typical science aspirations of being a doctor, you know, like, like anyone going to biology or majoring in biology. I did my undergrad at Simon Fraser University studying cell and molecular biology. And I did volunteering. I volunteered for the Lionsgate Hospital in the ICU there. And it was it was an eye-opener, right? The yeah. bedside manners, all of that, working with the patients directly. And I realized like this was not my environment and really had to pivot, right? Usually you go in with aspirations of being a doctor, there is no plan B, right? But I needed one. And at the time, Simon Fraser University had something really unique for them, which was the co-op program. Now, a lot of the institutions have the co-op program. This is essentially where students can actually get like a term working with the company instead of going to school for a semester or two and then getting experience before they graduate. So I did that as a way to pivot. And my first co-op term was working at a lab and we wanted to elucidate like the genes that are involved in how plants defend themselves. You know, when a bug bites them or like when the branches fall off, like when it gets wounded, what genes are expressed? How do we figure that out? How do we splice those genes into another tree to like help them grow better and defend themselves? Anyway, I worked in the lab uh, for a semester there, learned a lot, worked with the master students and got insight as to what the academia path might look like. They extended my term there and we started doing the studies out in the field, which brought me out to Souk for the first time, which I know you're out there. So in the middle of nowhere, in the wilderness, and I remember like doing this, this experiment with, with the students and it was a timed experience. You had to be out in the middle of nowhere for like a month straight. And I was like, if I die today, like nobody would know, right? And I'm twenty nine. Yeah, like seven dollars an hour, and I'm like, I'm making less here than I did at the Gap. Like, what am I doing with my life? And after I finished the term, like I said, I had an amazing time, and I learned a ton from the professor and and, and everyone in the lab. But I realized, okay, this isn't for me either. Like, the lab isn't for me. Field work isn't for me. Like, what's next? And then that's when I started thinking about the corporate world, like the companies and. And I had that conversation with my co-op advisor, like, I don't want to work in a lab. Like everything was lab labs at the time. Biotech was big at the time, working at Labatt, you know, 
urine analysis for another lab, you would get Simon Fraser in the co-op position. I was like, I don't want that. And at the time, Natural Factors, which is a fairly large dietary supplement, natural health product manufacturer on the West Coast, was hiring someone and for a co-op position. And this was to fulfill their requirements of natural health product regulations. It was brand spanking new at the time. It was 2004, 2005. And the company needed some support to handle this. I remember going for the interview. And when I got the job, my manager was literally like, here's the book on the regulations. Here's the guidance document. Now, now you tell us what we have to do. Like that was hmm. the role. Like for as a co-op student, I was like, this is amazing. And and I had the opportunity to essentially build out the team. We did hundreds of NPN applications at the time, like Health Canada had, they were trying to figure out how to execute the regulations themselves. Mm. Like they understood what the regulations were, but like, how do you actually execute this for, for the industry? Right. And there were a lot of inconsistencies and they did tours across Canada and they couldn't answer some of these questions. It was, it was a really cool time to, to be involved in that hands-on. So that was natural factors, went back, finished my, finished my degree. And, and they obviously offered me a position back with them full time. So I just, I stuck with them and I did more NPN applications. You know, you read up on the totality of evidence, ingredients, you know, what's effective, what's not the clinical trials. You really get this really wide picture of what's out there and get to work with the government agency. That said, there was a point where I was like, all right, I'm kind of bored with this. Like, what else can I do? This is very document heavy. This is very like just, you know, cerebral. And I really wanted to work in the production floor. So then I transitioned over to the validation department at Natural Factors. and. For those that aren't aware, validation isn't required for natural health products per se. It's not required for dietary supplements, but it's like a pharmaceutical exercise, if you will, for the, in this particular case, for the therapeutics good of Australia, which is the FDA of Australia. And this is the exploration and, and proving that whatever an equipment or lab method is supposed to do, that's actually doing it, that is mm -hmm. doing what it's intended to do. So quick example let's just say you want to test for a peanut allergen. Well, the test method, you know, how do you know it's actually picking up peanut allergen, right? What's the limit of this test method? Like how far can you push it? How robust is it? So you're trying to figure out this protocol to test all of this, to prove that it's actually picking up peanut allergen. That's validation. And this applies to equipment. This applies to like the HVAC system, the ERP system, everything. And so I was involved in that and head up that department and we certified the entire facility because of this exercise and it got natural factors TGA certification, which really very few facilities at the time had that. And it propelled them to like an international level. Like there are a lot of retailers that want to expand internationally now had the certification. They had a facility that had it and they could expand it together. It brought them international business. And I think they quickly realized, okay, each country has their own regulation. And even to us, we might feel that North America, Canada, US has the highest quality regulations requirements, which fair enough, they are quite stringent, but you try to go into the Philippines or Malaysia and they're like, no, you guys don't have anything good. Our regulations are better. And so you have to get through their, their laws and, and their requirements. And what they ended up doing, natural factors start, they actually plucked me out of validation and put me into this international business unit. So I headed up the regulatory affairs, international business unit component. And this is where we were working with countries like Taiwan, Korea, Australia, Japan, parts of the EU, et cetera. And so I was overlooking that, of course, the US included. And so I just grew my career with natural factors and with, or factors group as they then became, and they own several brands, they do private label. 
they're they're a very successful organization and and the people there are amazing and I got to know the owners and the family there it was it was amazing that said when I look at my resume the only place I've really worked for was factors group or natural factors and I really thought that it was a time right now to move and transition to another organization it was Vega which is where I met Justin and company and and helping helping Vega with the at the time like the white wave acquisition the transition yeah. right mm. and helping them with the regulatory component and then not too long after I started I think I started late 2016 early 2017 as we all know white wave was purchased by Danone mm. and that's where my role transitioned so not only was I heading up regulatory that's when I took over or inherited the quality team and we we were just like a powerhouse right there. Like we controlled our own supply chain all the way through. We were hands-on with the contract manufacturers. We audited them regularly. At the same time, my reporting structure changed. I was reporting straight to the, the president of Vega, but also to the leadership team in Danone North America, which obviously complicates things sometimes when they have conflicting <laughs> yeah. uh, priorities, but not a dull day. I will tell you that. And A lot, a lot of you're going to tell me first, right? Sorry? A lot of you're going to tell me first, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot of that. My goodness, all the text messages and phone calls, right? Uh, but yeah, like it was it was a fun-filled adrenaline rush, I will say. Like Vega, I, I, it was something I miss, I have to admit. Like it was just a very different culture there. Everyone trusted each other. And I will say, you know, working with Justin, I, I know that we didn't have like a lot of, you know, we didn't cross paths a lot, but... I'll say that I trusted the sales team like 110%. Everyone just leaned on each other. And mm -hmm. you can really feel that as soon as you walk into the building and everyone was going at you know 100 miles a second if they could. But it was a lot of memories there. And it was a lot of fun building out that team, working with them, getting to know them. And and what was interesting was, you know, I wasn't the expert, like my team was. Like they were the guys that were lifting the whole program, executing everything. I trusted them. They were the ones that I, I absolutely leaned on. And and I would say the same with Danon. Like they 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 were looking to us as experts in this in this foreign space to them, right? Ready to eat powders, you know, drinks. This is very different from dairy or yogurt. So yeah, it was it was quite an experience. And you know, after a while, I think it took its toll. I had to make decision, you know, on a personal level to to move away and, and step away from that just because there was so much travel. Like, you know, you're traveling a lot for the the headquarter to headquarters, back to the team, catching up to the suppliers, to the manufacturers, and uh ended up transitioning to a consulting role. And, you know, that was I'd say that was that was an interesting shift to go from the culture of putting as much time and effort you need to thoroughly handle a project, but not just that, like not just execute, but look at the project from a variety of angles, right? Implications. And to move from that, you know, working 12 hour days to a consulting role where you're tasked doing everything within an hour, <laughs> like yeah. everything's time-based. That was a huge shift for me. And, and it was an adjustment for sure, but I really understood how the consulting world worked, you know, what I thought were some of its challenges or what I believed in or thought, you know, I would do differently if I could. But again, learned a lot there. And you're now you're getting exposed to the, the, the smaller brands in addition to the larger brands, but handling a lot of the same similar compliance tasks, but now I'm doing the work rather than, than the team. 
Um, but that was the biggest shift was just the, the value model and the time model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then COVID hit and we also welcomed our first, like our daughter, she's, she's now two. And it was awakening for us to look at other places outside of Vancouver. A prices was an issue, of course. As we <laughs> a little know. bit. Yeah, just, just a little, but also like wanted to change the environment a little bit for our little one. Like give her that brain that we had when we were growing up and we moved to a fairly small town here on the East coast and the Maritimes. It's the population is like 1100 people compared to like two and a half million in Vancouver. And it's, it's like 1985 here from what I remember, like things close on Sundays, like right. Stores don't open till like, they don't open till like noon sometimes. And you got to get gas the day before everything closes down. Yeah. So it's a huge, huge change. Uh, but yeah, we, we moved. I had no plan, no, no career, like company to, to transition to. And thus was born Blue Ocean Regulatory. So that, that's the business that I've created. I'm running right now. Also the, the VP of quality there, but also the, the founder, if you will, of this small little consulting firm. But I will tell you, it's been a fun ride so far. That's, and yeah. Uh, yeah. That's where I am right now. That's amazing. I, I, uh, there's a few things I want to go back to, but definitely can understand the change and everything closing early. I remember when we got to the island, it's like the bakery is open like 12 to four or four days a week. I'm like, don't these people want to make money? Like, what is going on here? <laughs> like, I don't understand. But like, like, aren't bakeries supposed to open at like 5 a.m.? Like, isn't that their whole model? Like, what do you mean they're not open until noon? So, yeah, it's, it's a different world. Um, I think the first place that I want to go is just, if you could take some time and explain what regulatory is, what quality assurance is, like what those roles do, how they function, and then if there's even subsets below that in like the different areas, just to give our, our listeners an idea of like what exactly those roles are. Yeah. So regulatory, it's it's a big world, right? And this is also one of the challenges. Because it's a big role, you don't know where to start. There's a lot of unknown unknowns for, for a lot of startup brands. But essentially, ingestibles, you know, whether it's food, supplements, natural health products, but even cosmetics, even toys and apparel, they are all regulated to a certain degree. As some more than others, of course, there's going to be a high level of regulation for foods and supplements. There's this misperception, if you will, of supplements at least aren't regulated in the US by the FDA, which in fact it is. The argument is, or the issue is whether it's enforced enough, right? That's the big thing, but they are regulated. All these agencies expect us as a brand to comply to all these regulations. And when I talk about the regulations, we're we're looking at the entire span from ingredients, what's permitted, what's not permitted, to how much of an ingredient you can use, to marketing, what can you say, what can't you say, and then there are certain terms or claims like low carb, you know, zero gram sugar, all of these things have conditions and we can dive into some of those as well. But also manufacturing. So there are requirements and regulations and laws around manufacturing. So essentially, we're kind of like the police person, right? Trying to tell everyone what the rules are. So that's regulatory. And some examples of that, I talked about the low carb. Another good example is that zero gram sugar. Like to the layperson, right? How hard is it to formulate to zero sugars? I just make sure my ingredients have no sugars in it, right? That's like, that's normally the case. And so it's like, I can do that. Anybody can do that. But the thinking is, or the reality is is in the regulations, zero grams of sugar is actually heavily regulated. regulated. There are a lot of conditions you need to meet. And when you dive into it, not only do you have to make sure that there are no sugar in your products and that it's zero grams of sugar, 
but you have to hit a certain calorie component. And wh why does this matter? Like, who cares? Why is calorie an issue? Well, if I'm a consumer and I pick up a product and I see zero gram sugar, but then the product gives me like 400 calories, you know, if I'm ingesting mm -hmm. 400 calories, it's kind of misleading, right? It's kind of like you're, you're almost tricking the consumer. They think it's a healthy product because it's zero gram sugar, but they're actually ingesting an excess amount of calories. So the regulation is trying to factor that in and trying to protect the consumer mm -hmm. and say, hey, no, 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 you have to tell the consumer that there's, you know, that this is not a low calorie food. And you have to add this like little sentence is like not a low calorie food <laughs> in there. It's kind of counterintuitive, but that is the regulation to you. And comes with good intentions, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of companies have been sued for missing that statement, by the way. And so the regulatory people out there in the world, we're trying to make sure that that doesn't happen to a lot of these brands. So we're trying to give them the guidance, review their labels and make sure that they, they, they know what's ahead of them. Um, but so let's, so let's... it's ultimately, ultimately like consumer safety and, and really like ensuring, I guess, fair, fair practice, right? Yeah, exactly. They, they don't want they want to make sure that the consumers aren't being misled in any way. And of course, that no one gets hurt, right? Taking your product yeah. or going, going to the hospital. But if I just dive a little bit in a different direction, you've got things such as working with influencers. So if a brand wants to work with a social media or YouTube influencer, there are guidelines and laws and rules around that, right? And, and there is responsibility for the brand to make sure that the influencer knows about things and monitors them. And if they don't, the brand can get sued. So there's a lot, it's very wide, it's very expansive. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges for a lot of, for a lot of brands, even established brands. There's just so many things to look at. We're not even talking about state law or provincial requirements. We're just talking more of the federal level. I'll throw one more in. Um, the scenario of no regulation, right? When it's not regulated, we may feel like, oh, then I've got free reign, right? And it's even a more grayer area because there aren't any. So while I might interpret the word, say, 100% natural, there is no regulation around that. FDA doesn't tell you what the rules are. And some brands think, oh, well, if that's the case, I can figure out what that means. I can interpret it the way I want. The problem is, is the consumer or a lawyer can interpret it the way that they want. And mm -hmm. as a result, that's when the lawsuits come in and, and all, and those issues happen. So there's the regulations and what they say. And then there's also this side of regulations about what's not defined. So that that's regulatory in a, in a nutshell, if I could. And then you've got QA and in the scope of dietary supplements or natural health products, QA is typically at the manufacturing level or at the logistics or distribution level. We're thinking about all, you know, how do they execute all these rules from a manufacturing standpoint? You know, what kind of testing can you do? But also like, how do you train the people to execute this, right? The, the labors, how do you make sure that production is done properly? How do you make sure that, you know, the pallets don't fall apart? So there's, there's all these other components that quality is trying to address. And ultimately what it's trying to do is just make sure that these problems don't even happen in the first place. Like that's the whole point prevention, mm -hmm. like that's the big principle, but if something were to happen, like how do you fix it? So that's, that's the compliance side. And it can get really big. You can go from manufacturing to, you know, quality of the supply chain. So your ingredients or quality of the packaging, right? So you, now you're looking at lids and the components and the, the materials that make up the bottle, right? To testing and the test method used and the sampling plan. It, it can go, it's a very, very interesting career path for someone that could be looking at it. It's, it can get really, really big, really complex, but I will say that the expertise 
you know, that one can gather from this can make them highly valuable in a short mm -hmm. period of time as a result. I mean, if you specialize, you'll be sought after for that one thing that you're good at and, and you can charge a hefty fee as a result. Very cool. Very cool. So it seems like on the QA side, you almost lean more into like almost an engineering type of mindset, like creating processes and creating basically risk management through engineering. But on the regulatory side, it's almost like policy legal work, maybe needing to speak that language. But at the same time, it's it's a little bit more, I guess, you. I think you used the word cerebral earlier, you know, like a lot of documentation and substantiation and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. One way I look at it is you know, the regulatory component. Yes, they're looking at the labels and the marketing, but they also kind of lay down the rules, right? It's like here, are what here's what the rules are. Yeah. And then the quality team is the engineers that are trying to figure out how to execute. Right. You're right. Yeah. The risk assessment, the risk management, and then the actual execution. How do you do this in a way that is within the scope of a company, within their budget, within the amount of people you have? Yeah. Uh, right. So each organization is different in how they approach this, and and the regulations gives you that flexibility. But there are certain things that you can't you can't uh, bend the rules on, or you can't ignore. Right. But yeah, you've essentially very well. And, and I had a question, like lawsuits, are those typically like, I don't know, maybe it's a mix, but is that often consumers or is that often like regulatory bodies bringing those forward? Yeah, that's a good question. This is a tough one. I would say that depends on which side of the fence you're on. In my experience, I would say that a lot of this is driven by lawyers that are out there looking for a quote unquote quick buck. Right. What they do is they'll go into Whole Foods, at least, you know, if you rewind 10 years ago before Whole Foods had their compliance team, they'll go into a Whole Foods, they'll buy products off the shelf, dump them on the table, and then look at each one and see what are all the non-compliances, each label, send demand letters based on that. And then, you know, by Monday morning, see how many come back with settlements. Like that's, there is that, there is that environment out there. And yes, yeah, some are consumers. But I think there's something else that's driving a lot of the, the lawsuits that we're seeing. And I also think that over time, companies have been a lot smarter with regards to regulations, you know, putting the compliance people in place. But at the same time, there's a lot of lawyers that are now digging even deeper into the regulations. So that example of that low cal, not a low calorie food, it's, a, it's one statement and it's, it's in the regulations that you got to dive deep to find this stuff. And that's exactly what these lawyers are doing or these, these firms are doing. Now, are they doing it to protect the consumer? Possibly, right? That's ultimately what these regulations are. They don't want to make sure that no one's getting misled in any way. But at the same time, when you have these conversations with the lawyers, you get a sense that there's a different agenda. Can't say that that's the case all the time, but I will say that in, in some of the experiences I've had, that has been the case. I, yeah, when, when you were first telling like about that example, in my head, I was like, is this a consumer who's like filing a lawsuit because their bikini season got ruined because it said zero grams of sugar and it was 400 calories? Or is this, is this some, some, someone else? So that makes, makes some, a little more sense. Jerk. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. And then the question around, like, I would imagine because science is constantly evolving, regulations are constantly changing and, and the government's probably trying to keep up with them too, right? As new products are coming out, like when a regulation changes, how do you like one, know about it. And two, like what's the window to get it implemented in your product or packaging? Yeah. Really good question. So I would say that 
Health Canada or the USFDA, they're pretty good at giving everyone a heads up that this is coming. And they actually seek industry feedback as well. It's like, here's what we're proposing. Mm -hmm. And they're giving everyone, you know, several months to get back to them. And they look at all the comments and they determine whether there's merit or not, and then respond to each one of them. So there's, it's a long process. It takes several years to do. And, and actually USFDA has recently decided to look at adjusting the definition of the word healthy. Mm -hmm. And that's one of them where they're like, Hey, here's what we're thinking. Industry, please tell us what what your thoughts are on this. And so there's a lot of time. So industry insiders, compliance experts, lawyers, they're seeing all of this in real time. They see what's coming. They get a sense of how, you know, how serious is FDA or Health Canada is on this, whether they like it or not, but they do hear you out. They hear industry out, but let's assume that they're actually going to execute this. It's a packaging change. They usually give like a year maybe two years to make these changes. They know that this is not easy and they have to run through labels and there's a cost to it. And sometimes they do an extension. As soon as you hit the deadline, they also know that, okay, we'll give them another six months or something something like that. So there's usually a good window. Where it's hard for brands, I think, is if they're fairly new and they just got in at the time after the extension or close to when the extension is over. Then, mm. but hopefully by then they've already made labels that are compliant to the newer the newer regulations. But it shouldn't be a surprise, and a lot of brands should be anticipating how these regulations would impact their packaging, you know, their look, their marketing campaign, what they can or can't say, et cetera, and kind of you know get ready for it or or make any sort of adjustments as a result. Very cool. Makes sense. I, I, on the on the what they can and can't say topic, I guess a big part of your job as well is is shepherding marketing as well, right? Yeah, we definitely have to work really closely with the marketing team because they have their brand positioning and mm-hmm. and all those key claims, and we want to make sure that they're doing it in a way that doesn't get the brand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's standard. Yeah, it's standard issue, and you know that the the compliance team really should be you know arm in arm with with all the other departments marketing sales product development operations it's there's a there's that underlying fabric of quality and compliance and and all of those things and and I'll say that you know my time at Vega was a great example of that like everyone like I said trust each other we listen to each other we try we always made things work i think there are some other organizations i've seen as a consultant or another experience where the compliance team is seen as the bad guys, the, the people that say no all the time, right? And what happens yeah. is you get a compliance team that, you know, they're beat down, they're siloed as a result, or people are scared to bring things up to them. And the, the fear that they might say no and shut down is a really great idea, which is too bad. And, and that was the last thing the Vega team as a whole ever wanted. And and, and you yeah. can really feel that. Everyone wanted to know what the other team was doing. It was very collaborative right from the get-go during the team meetings. So it was, you know, it was a really cool experience, I have to say. And and I wish that was more widespread than than I've seen in the past. Yeah. Agreed. I think the QA regulatory roles a lot like we've talked about sales strategy roles, where because you're not like you're sort of behind the scenes. And if you're doing your job really well, it's sort of seamless. And the sales team is selling and getting listings and the marketing program looks great. And the sales strategy person never gets the win. The QA person never gets the win, right? Like they're they're sort of making everything work. So it can be a bit of a thankless job, I'm sure. And and then I also think of the parallel with with QA a little bit with my wife works in, in HR and people in culture. And she's the same sort of thing. It's like sometimes seen as the bad guy, that's not the case, right? But it's just, you have to be 
the the realist and the adult and like like fix the things right yeah. so I, I can imagine it would be seen similarly in that way yeah it's it's funny you mentioned that because you know ideally if the compliance team did their job like to the t like the theoretical scenario nothing bad would ever happen <laughs> so you would never know whether exactly. the compliance team's actually doing their jobs or not and yeah. and it's one of those the irony right in it but there's always a fire that happens it's just yeah, well, sure, but... i was gonna say your tyson quote like getting punched in the mouth does <laughs> does throw the plan off pretty hard <laughs> when it comes to you know whether it's a lawsuit or or worse right like if you're having to do some sort of recall or something yeah and if you and if you ever have one of those conversations with your if you're on the sales side with your buyer you have no idea what they're talking about so you want to get a hold of someone on that team so quickly so that you don't say the wrong thing that they become super important very fast <laughs> like yeah like i i was always worried about that so that's um very cool so like what what do you love about working in this space like if, if you know what what really gives you energy lights you up you've done it now for for a long time right i think close to close to 20 years now or maybe more than 20 years in this, this space so you obviously really enjoy it why would someone want to we just we just talked about how it was thankless so ignore that part but like, <laughs> like, like 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 what are the goods like what are the pros of working this space yeah i think um to me i feel like there's a, a part where it's a niche area right not everyone mm. knows about it right when you got you get out of college no one knows about qa or compliance and regulatory and so at least in my experience, I found that it was easy to be known as the person. So from a career standpoint, you propel yourself into a certain limelight, if you will, or spotlight because of it. And versus if I went into marketing, you're amongst a whole bunch of other people that are your competitors, essentially, right? Your colleagues, you're out of school. Whereas, you know, you go into this field, not many people know it, not many people understand it, and you become the expert right away, which is kind of mm -hmm. cool because now they rely on you and you get that exposure to other departments and to more people and maybe senior management, et cetera, from a career standpoint. I think there's that element to it, at least when I was younger. And I think that there's an appeal there of you being the expert. You have a you have a fairly fast track to a brand, if you will, from a from a career standpoint. But fast forward to today, I think the what i get out of it now is really the ability to give back that all that expertise that i've absorbed over the years now you can bring it back to startup right to a, a fairly young company that's looking for that expertise so that they don't make the same mistakes that all the other brands have made mm -hmm. and and they just don't have to go through all of those issues right that's kind of like the whole point it's just like okay now how do i give this back to the industry how do you mentor the new generation of compliance people? All of these things. Uh, yeah, so it's just been it's just been part of the nature and it just goes hand in hand with the character. And, and I think there's a personal challenge for me of how do we make quality funner? <laughs> if that's even possible. But like that's yeah. always been the thing. I'm like, okay, how do we make this consumable to the average person? Like, how do we build those bridges? How do we how do we make it easy to understand for others? That's mm -hmm. always been a personal challenge of mine that that I always find I'm up for. Yeah. It's it's as you said that, another flashback just happened in my mind about Brian's QA moments that used to do at all of our town halls and and company meetings, which was a great example. He would do a quick like five minute video on on something QA, but again, he would, you know, make it very fun and informative at the same time. And so just making it very like digestible for people that maybe didn't know what the team was doing. So you've done a good job of that, I think, your your whole career, which is kind of cool. 
Yeah, I've had a blast doing that. I had to really work on my Final Cut, Final Cut Pro skills, my editing <laughs> skills. And my wife would be like, "What are you doing up at three in the morning?" I'm like, "I'm editing this video." Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, and Alex and I were having a laugh about that and, and talking about your your YouTube channel and saying that uh, the reason we started a podcast is because we're in, we no one wants to see videos of us. We're, <laughs> we want to hide our faces. Faces for Spotify is faces for Spotify. Yeah, so that's why we don't. That's why we don't have this successful YouTube channel. We're, no one wants to watch us on video, but uh, yeah. we do appreciate yeah, you coming know. coming down to join us from, from <laughs> yes, YouTube yes. Mountain. Yes, that's that's true. So, I guess Brian, tell us more about like Blue Ocean, like what you're working on now, what exactly the company does, and maybe like what's what's next for the company. Sure. Yeah. So, Blue Ocean Regulatory. I mean, we offer the the standard suite of compliance services for established brands, right? So, label review, claim substantiation, recalls, SOPs, like standard operating procedures, the typical things that you would find with other consulting firms. I think where we're different is you know we're really business minded, right? We've taken that executive level experience, the decision making, and really brought that over here to to Blue Ocean. I think if we look at other consulting firms it's really easy for them to just regurgitate the regulations. It's really easy to just say, here's everything a brand needs to do. But the reality is like a startup brand or even an established brand, they might not have the funds to do that, or they're just not to scale. They're just not at that stage. And so we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we do this? That's the right scale for the company at where they're at now, whether that's a budget size operation, the, the whole works. And really, how do you scale down the compliance for them? And so there's that business-minded decision-making that we're not afraid you know, to go on and, and to give those recommendations. The other piece is we really want to show off that we've worked with the whole foods of the world. We understand their compliance requirements, right? The mm -hmm. CVSs of the world. They've got their own compliance teams now. They've got their own lawyers. They're the ones asking brands now, send me proof of your claims, send me your labels. Yeah. We're going to have our legal team review it. So we want to make that as seamless as possible. We want that experience with the buyer to be as flawless and as smooth as possible, right? So we're helping these brands get through that before that even comes up. It's, no, it's a no brainer. It's like, here you go. We hundred percent confidence is going to get through. And then lastly, it's just around, you know, being selective of who we work with. I think that also separates us. We don't, we're not in the business of getting everyone. I have no interest of getting the the, the Danons of the world, hey, they don't need me, but you know that's a separate ball of headaches that I don't need. I want to work with the brands that hey, care about compliance, they care about the growth, and you know they're innovative. That's what we're doing. So yeah, we offer the conventional suite of services. We're like the remote QA or compliance team for them. But then there's this other arm of service that we offer, which is the pre-startup, like the the future Vega entrepreneur, the future Athletic Greens entrepreneur, if they were to start a brand today, we want to work with them. We want to help them launch their brand. We want to give them that foundation of quality and, and compliance now so they don't have to make these huge packaging changes later. They don't have to deal with these lawsuits, you know, fingers crossed later. And, and of course, we don't want to make them to make the same mistakes. We see the same issues over and over again with these brands that we start working with. They, they work with the same contract manufacturers. They, they see the same ones on Google. They get the quotes from them. And then they're taken down this path where it's just not the right relationship. But by then it's too late. They've already signed the contract. They've already committed the PO. So we're trying to educate them, guide them through this process so that they're not taken advantage of 
but at the same time, do this all in a way that's FD compliant and FTC compliant and, and all of this fun, fun stuff. But yeah. So that's kind of like the two arms, if you will. One is like the established brands and one is the, the startups or the ones that are thinking about building out their, their new product for their influencer followers, right? Like some of these guys are big YouTube influencers or TikTok influencers. They want to bring a product out. They just want to know how to do it. And that's who we're working with. Very cool. Very cool. And then on the topic of YouTube, tell us a little bit about the Mighty Startup. Yeah. So essentially this is the YouTube channel that was intended to, I guess, simplify the regulations and compliance for those that are thinking about starting up their brand. And yeah, our channel isn't huge. It's about, at least at the time of today, is like 1,700 subscribers. So it's a, it's a fairly small channel, but it seems to be garnering a fairly strong following. And the feedback has been really positive and makes me, you know, makes makes me feel great because people actually understand compliance now and, and they're they're giving me that feedback. They're like, oh yeah, this makes this makes way more sense. And they understand like how do I now that they have this education, they can bring that to their conversation with contract manufacturers, with potentially other buyers or brokers, and they can kind of keep up with them. And so that's, that's originally the intention is like, okay, let's just educate everyone. If everyone is starting their brand, they either they want to do their own brand or if they want to work with investors. Now they've got free access to information and, and hopefully they end up wanting to work with us. And that's kind of the, the goal of that channel. Yeah. And, and as Justin mentioned, we, we've got him on the, on the show coming up and editing the video as we speak. So yeah, looking forward to getting that out. And it's been just, it's been a lot of fun, but I would tell you like editing video is, it's a time sink for sure. Especially if it's me. <laughs> I didn't want to do <laughs> Who are you, man? That's, and I think you're, you're being humble. I think it's a pretty, pretty amazing channel. The videos are great. If you go check them out, we'll put a link at the posting of this, but like all the transitions, the quality, the different imagery, it's, it's pretty amazing. And, and you've got videos there that have you know, 7,000 views, which I think is something Alex and I dream of getting to one day. So I think you're, you're being humble. It's, it's doing extremely well. So what's, what's, what's next for you? You've got this, you got a cool company here at Blue Ocean. You've got this fun YouTube channel. You've moved about as far as you could possibly move. What's next? Yeah. I mean, I think Blue Ocean is pretty much my baby at this point. It's, it's fairly new. It's still in infancy. And so that's really the focus now. And I think also, as I was talking about earlier, the consulting world is everything is time-based, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, okay, how do we redo this where it's not? And that's kind of like the next challenge for us. How do we separate ourselves from this time-based, time fee-based or time-fee-based model and move into a world where you know, I don't necessarily have to be so hands-on all the time. I think that's, if I can crack that nut, that'd be the way to do it. But that said, it's still an infancy one step at a time. Right now, it's just about building out that clientele and making sure that they're happy and keeping the clients that we currently do have satisfied and making sure they, they stay out of trouble. Makes sense. Yeah, that's, uh, a, that's a tough nut to crack. I think yeah. like it, it's because you think of like a, a graphics design logo, like the Nike logo, right? Like how... How much is the Nike logo worth? How long did it take to make? Right? Like it's like I think you know, there's lots of examples like that, but it's it's it is a fair point. How do you how do you move people from from time to value? One thing we're always interested in, in learning from people is just how they structure their time. Like how, how really, Brian, like how do you organize your your days and weeks to kind of maximize your output and, and productivity? 
Yeah, I would say the I'm a huge proponent of using my calendar. Like if it's not in the calendar, it's not getting done. So as soon as I need to put a task in, it's just putting it into my Outlook or my the calendar on my iPhone and just and using that and planning out the week. So I plop everything into the calendar for the week. Outside of that, I have a trusty notebook where I write everything in there. My and then the top two to three things I need to do for that day. But I also just write down all the notes from the meetings, just with that one document that I'm using throughout the day just to keep me on track. But yeah, those are the two tools. The calendar is big. If you're not in there, it's not happening. That's essentially the rule. And that goes for my family as well. I just want to make <laughs> sure I've got it all locked in and that I don't double book myself as a result. So you put, you put tasks right into the calendar, like time blocked, I'm assuming? Like yeah, a- yeah, I put, yeah, I put that in there. I use the reminder feature. So even I would have blocks that have the individual tasks in there just so yeah. it's in your face and I need that. And then if, if, if I really can't do it, you hit the snooze button, but it'll, it'll obviously pop back up again. But that, yeah, that's been the technique I've been using. And uh, where I was going with it, I'm curious, just like, what's the shortest amount of time that you'll block? Like shortest half, 50, an hour. half an hour. Yeah. F- maybe 15 minutes, usually half an hour. I really like to make sure I've got a good chunk of time to do just to take care of it. Yeah. Uh, usually I'll batch things. I feel like you guys are probably doing the same thing. Yeah. I'd, I'd rather do that than, you know, two minutes there, five minutes here. I just rather batch everything all together and knock it all out. Love it. Yeah. yeah. I, I do. I have some, I mean, I have a notebook right here that I'm writing in and then I've put everything in my calendar and I've had before where managers can see like what you put in your calendar, you know, they have that access and I'd have like every personal thing ever in there. Like anything I'm doing, like concerts on the weekend or like date night with staff or everything is in there because if it's not in there, yeah, I completely forget it. And even to this day, like, you know, my wife and I on our, on our work emails are blocking time and calendars and like, I need to be able to see it that way. Otherwise I'm, it's just complete chaos. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Another question that we, we like to ask people is around we call it our brand fan. It's what is a product out there that you absolutely love? Either you use the product or you just love what they're doing from a marketing standpoint. Like what is something out there that you look at and you go, wow, this is this is a real game changer. I'm shaking my head because the brand that comes to mind is Kia. And really? I don't know if you know, Justin, but like I love my Hemi V8s. I love the luxury cars. I've you know had several in my past. And if you told me that, I'd have a Telluride, you know, three years ago, I'd laugh, I'd laugh at your face, but I've, I've got a Telluride sitting outside and it's, you know, we love that car and, and it's amazing what Kia has done. They like complete underdog, right? When I was growing up, Kia was like the brand you stayed away from and mm-hmm. they've, I don't know what they've been doing, but they've been hitting the right styling, you know, design cues, the, the features, the value, the warranty, like just hitting all the right components. And I'm not saying it's going to, turn a Mercedes buyer into a Kia buyer. But in my opinion, I feel like they've done a good job at making a Mercedes buyer like look twice at a Genesis or, you know what I mean? Or a Hyundai, like, oh, what is yeah. that? You know what I mean? Like, and that to me is like true underdog story. And yeah, that was the one that came to mind. And and I know they recently changed their logo. I don't know if you haven't seen their logos lately, mm-hmm. but you know, before it was like K-I-A, right? Kia. And then now it looks like a K and then like a backwards A or something. It looks like K-N. It looks like a K-N. Yeah. And for me, I was like, okay, that logo looks different enough from the Kia name <laughs> that, that I'm okay with it. Yeah. But I don't know. Kia, I was just amazed at what they've been able to do. And, and it's actually convinced me to just their, their cars. You're the second person in the last three months who's, who's kind of said this to me, actually. I, I know someone who's looking to get rid of their Volvo 
I think they maybe it was like a whatever C40 SUV, but like you know, not a not an eight seater, and they wanted the Kia, the Kia eight seater. So yeah, and during during COVID, like the used car market was insane, right? Like it was really yeah. high, and then new cars were hard to come by. Either they were flying off the floor, or the new orders would take six months to a year to get to you. And I think Kia's, at least in the states, they had markups like fifteen thousand, twenty thousand dollar markups on a Kia. Like that's how much in demand they were. It was it's it's crazy. Sure, part of it was highly fueled because of COVID, but it's just crazy how they've been able to turn their that brand around. And they seem to have hit all the right marks so far. And I look forward to seeing their new their new stuff. Love that one. Love that one. Okay. Last question. We we like to just give people a bit of a soapbox. A chance to if you were talking to a bunch of people, let's say in their early 20s, starting their career, considering a career in, in the products world, maybe in regulatory or QA, what would you what would you want them to take away with one or two pieces of, of advice? Yeah. I think the big one is don't let your present situation or like locality determine your career. So essentially saying, you know, don't let your friends, your family, or your professor tell you what you should be doing. Or even thinking locally, like, oh, I'm good at math. I should be an engineer. I feel like that's too restrictive. We only learn a fraction of what the world can offer us in school. And so the idea of we determining our career now, I think is too limiting. Uh, one fun exercise that I've mentioned to others that have asked me of like, what should I do in my life is to spend a day and just enjoy all the things you like doing. So whether that's like, you know, soaking in the hot tub for the morning, listening to your iPods and some podcasts, you know, drink your favorite coffee, go for a walk, whatever it is that day that you enjoy doing, do it. And then the next day, Think back at the brands or the companies you enjoyed and why. And then also start thinking of the idea like, hey, could I work in these companies? Like, oh, who designed that chair in that Tesla that I saw? I want to do that. Like really just use this as an experiment or a fun day to enjoy what you're doing. And then just think the possibility of you working for these companies. Maybe you want to get into HR, but you could be the HR of, of Tesla instead of you know HR of the local finance department or office down the street, right? So this idea of, you know, your present situation, or your current locality, I think is that we want to move away from and, and, and explore even bigger. The other thought is as a student, just stay away from student loans. I think that's like a, a wealth, like killer. If I understand sometimes you need it, but if there's any way you can avoid it, I'd highly recommend it. And, and for me, I thought, Wanted to do student loans at first, but realized that the cost tied to it. And I just instead just worked my way through college. It took me forever to get my undergrad, but coming out of that debt-free, I think was a huge help. And if there's any advice there, just just do that. And I think you'll be ahead of the, the gang <laughs> when you come out, out of university or college, right right out the gate. Yeah. And those. Alex and I both did co-op too. So we, we get the, the idea behind that. But I love, yeah, I love that first piece of advice of just like having... We, we do these things with kids sometimes they call like their yes day, do whatever the heck they want for the entire day. It's like doing that for yourself and realizing what are the brands. And that that's such a cool way to, to think about. I'm going to have to do that now and, and check it out and see which brands pop up. But I mean, that was partially how I ended up at Vega was I started consuming Vega shakes. Alex can attest that I was consuming Vega shakes for breakfast every day. And then I was like, well, I could sell this. Like, like I like, I love this. I was telling people about it. Like, I think I could probably sell this. So that's a, that's a cool mind shift idea. I like that a lot. Very, very cool. Also, you get to have that day, which sounds like a pretty damn good day. It's it's so. a it's a great way to sell a day for just me to Steph. 
<laughs> like, sorry, like I, I totally have to do this. It's soul searching. So I'm gonna hit the sauna, the cold plunge, and do everything. Yeah, that's gonna be great. Yeah, very interesting. Oh, Brian, so you know, people listening, how can they, you know, if they wanna talk to you, pick your brain, get your advice, help, where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. Email me, Brian at blueoceanregulatory.com. You can visit our website, blueoceanregulatory.com, or if you go on YouTube, Mighty Startup. Our names will pop up, absorb as much content as possible. And uh, if there's any questions I can field for the viewers or or for, for the two of you at any point, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, let's definitely stay in touch. Awesome. Thank you so awesome. much, Brian. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Brian. Well, that was a different angle on the business that I think a lot of people maybe take for granted, but I think it's an incredibly important part of making long-standing brands because you think like the risk of failure of that function yeah, could be the brand, right? Like it's, it's crazy. Anyhow, what, what were some of your key takeaways? I mean, I, I agree. I absolutely love what he said at the end about that day, like to figure out what you want to do. Like, what are some of the things you enjoy? What are the products you like? That, like that's such simple advice, but I don't think anyone ever does that. Like, I think that's fantastic advice. Um, I think the other piece for me was just throughout, like how self-aware Brian is. So even at the beginning, when he talked about needing to leave Vega because he was overwhelmed with travel and wanted to have more time with family, talk about the move to the East Coast and what that did and starting his own company and like, and just understanding what he needs to do and when he needs to do it. I just find like brave and um courageous and, and something that I think people burn out and get too stressed. And I just like the way he approached that. The other thing, I just liked him talking about the QA and you know regulatory world because as we've talked about in university, there's no sales courses really. Maybe there's one. You specialize in marketing, finance, accounting. And yet we ended up working in sales. It, it, it's a bit odd. And I think the QA and regulatory in a lot of ways is the same where it's like this huge industry that exists, but there's no like university course that directly sets you up for it. So it's a bit of a hidden field that that people can maybe stumble into. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there if you're if you're good at that and you enjoy that. What about you, Alex? Yeah, I think I mean a lot of the same ones. And I I think one of my biggest, you know, takeaways I, I opened with here, which is just how important it is to to the security of your business long term. Um, I did I did find him talking about QA interesting and like how that's really science and action. And I think we kind of touched on it a bit with Julie, um, like where, you know, science, I guess, and engineering in action to to make processes that that really adhere to, you know, delivery on quality and, and protecting the business from from problems uh, that can come from quality failure. So I, I, I find all that stuff super interesting. I really liked uh, all of his takeaways. I thought also don't let your locality determine your your destiny. Uh, his little, his little piece on that is like yeah. super huge. And I, I think people often don't really, um, I not maybe don't, don't strong word. It's just very difficult to be aware of how much potential lies in front of you, especially when you're coming out of university or something like that. So, um, you know, knowing that, um, you could really go and do anything, um, is always an important thing to remind yourself of. And I thought he, he delivered it in a really nice way. Yeah, I absolutely agreed. Make sure you check them out. Uh, check out the YouTube channel, Mighty Startup. Great videos. 
he makes QA and regulatory fun. And, you know, reach out to him if you have any questions. We'll post his, his email and the website link when we put at the bottom of this episode. Appreciate everyone listening in and, and sticking with us. Remember to follow, uh, like, subscribe, uh, and please give us those five-star ratings. Five stars only, please. With that, we will let you go. Get back to your day. Make sure that tomorrow you take that day to yourself. Enjoy your day. Find out what really you want to do. That's what I'm going to do. Bye, guys.